Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for January 26th, 2020. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Amy Jack Steen, co-pastor with Russ Dean at Park Road Baptist Church. Her sermon today is entitled, That Time I Was Baptized, Twice, and I'm Sorry About One of Them. For this season of Epiphany, you get to hear from both of us. I will tell you a personal story, and Russ will say a little more about the text. Though I did make a note, he said when he was, before he read it, is this good doctrine? In a couple of places, I said no. I'm just saying. But I'm not preaching, so I don't know what he's going to do with that. I tell you, you can guess the parts that I don't like, right? Yeah. Okay. I tell you my story only with the hope that it will prompt you to comb through your own life and find your own experiences that have shaped and formed your life of faith. Three weeks ago, Dan and Ladane explored the mythical aspect of faith. Two weeks ago, Russ and I talked about the experiential aspect of faith. Last week, we discussed the ethical dimension of faith, and today we explore doctrine. Last week, I really am into sermon titles. I title the sermon before I write it, and so it always helps when after I write it, it goes with the sermon. Sometimes it doesn't, and I wish I had chosen a different title, but I really liked last week's sermon title. It was, That Time I Broke the Law Twice, and I'm Not Sorry. Well, today's title is, That Time I Was Baptized Twice, and I'm sorry about one of them. I grew up, my father was Southern Methodist, and my mother was Catholic. And so I grew up going from one week to the next to the Southern Methodist Church, which is a lot like the Southern Baptist Church, way more like the Southern Baptist Church than United Methodist Church. It was not United Methodist in any shape or form. Think independent or small Southern Baptist church. So that was my dad's church. My mom's church was a small Catholic church in Joanna, South Carolina. As you can imagine, there are just not a lot of Catholics in Joanna, South Carolina, especially uh, there are more now than there were when I was a child uh, 50 years ago. So I grew up going to both churches. Both of those uh, ways to practice faith practice infant baptism. But because I was going to both churches, I was never baptized as an infant. So at the ripe old age of 13, I decided to join the church to make a public profession of faith. And I chose the Southern Methodist Church as my route in which I was going to practice my faith. And so I made this announcement to my family. My mother blessed it. My father was elated. All of my family, the rest of my family, cousins, brothers, sister, everybody was in the Methodist church. And so my parents said, you know, this is a big deal. And I said, it is a big deal. And I know that I was never baptized. So when I make my, when I go down to join the church, I want to be baptized as well because I've never been baptized. And oh, there was great joy on heaven, in heaven and on earth because I was going to be baptized. So my parents, the pastor was a young, um, he, he was very young and he was a little bit good looking. I'm just going to say that. I remember that. I remember that. 
and he was single, and I was 13. And so we were going to have Steve Piggott over for dinner to discuss my baptism and joining the church. Steaks. We were going to grill steaks. I mean, we just didn't grill steaks. We were going to eat in the dining room with the fine china. And my brother and sister are a lot older than I am. They were already married. And so they both came. We sat around the dining room table and we talked about this profession of faith that I was going to follow Jesus. I was giving my life to something I'd already given my life to, but I was making a conscious decision that I was going to be baptized. And it was steak on china in the dining room. It was a big deal. So the day comes, and it's a beautiful little church, and the altar uh, wraps around the front with red velvet cushion on the knee. So pretty. I wish we had one of those. Let's redo the sanctuary. (laughs) So I come down the aisle. They call us forward. I kneel down at the altar. My dad's on one side. My mom's on the other standing there. My brother and his wife, my sister and her husband, and the and. And Reverend Piggott takes a little dip of water and he drips it over my head. And he says something like, because of your decision to follow in the way of Jesus, I baptize you, my sister. And it was holy. And it was profound. And it was deeply spiritual. And I felt something that day. I'm not sorry about that one. So imagine how it felt at the ripe old age of 19, newly engaged, about to be married. We can talk about the age of that later. My parents were all for it. Everybody was happy. It does seem too young, but I digress. So we're going to get married in August. I was 19 years old. I did turn 20 a few weeks before I got married. We got engaged, and I decide I'd been going to Russ's dad's church, First Baptist Church of Clinton, And it's clear he's going to seminary. I'm going to be an elementary school teacher and have babies and stay home and be a stay-home mom. Huh. That didn't quite work out like I had planned, but that was the plan. And so I was going to be a great, submissive pastor's wife. I was. I was. let Let me stop right here and say, I don't know her. I love her, but I don't really know her anymore. But I remember her. Anyway, I felt that I needed to join the Baptist church. And so I said, I'm going to join the Baptist church. And Russ's dad says, that's wonderful. You'll need to be baptized. To which I said to Russ, to Russ, I've already been baptized. And something in that moment, that sweet little submissive girl went, this doesn't seem quite right. I've already done that. I had a spiritual experience. Y'all remember it? It was right over there. Steak, dining room, altar, drops of water. But I had to go under. I had to be immersed in order to join the church. I feel bad for that girl. I really do. Because she did submit and she did do it, not because Russ made me but because I was honoring the tradition and the doctrine of that church that said to be a member of that church, you had to go under completely. A few drops would not be enough. And it felt like an initiation into a club. And I'm sorry about that one. 
This person would say, no, thank you. I'll wait and join Park Road Baptist Church someday. <laughs> because the doctrine at Park Road Baptist Church of Brown Baptism is this. It's a separate conversation from membership. Baptism should be that, not that. But let me take this opportunity to say something about the importance of this belief about baptism. It's nothing magical. There's nothing magical that happens except the memory of that moment can carry you for a lifetime. That feeling of making that decision public and the, the beauty, I think the beauty of going through the water, under the water, I think it's lovely. And I hope that it might be something that you all might consider if you've never been through the water. I look out and I see all the people I've dunked, totally immersed into the way of Jesus. And I hope you're having these conversations with your children, and with your teenagers, that this is an important step, but it's not a step that has to be done. It's a spiritual decision between you and God to let the church affirm what you are feeling inside, to make public what you feel inside. But I hope you never ex have to be forced to experience God, because I'll tell you, it rarely works. This way works every single time. And should you decide that baptism is just not for you, Guess what? All are welcome in this place. Water, drops, a whole big pool of it, or none of it. All are welcome in this place. May it be so. Amen. I had a fascinating conversation recently with a retired cantor at Temple Israel, Elias Rushvarg. Elias and I have known each other for a few years, but we were recently part of an interfaith panel discussion in December. We offered different perspectives on the topic, who is Jesus? Different perspectives, but a respectful dialogue. Afterwards, we talked, and Elias had some questions for me, and I had some questions for him, so we met for barbecue last week. Sounds like the beginning of a good joke, doesn't it? The Baptist and the Jewish cantor met at the barbecue house for a conversation? He didn't have the pork, I'll tell you that. <laughs> In the panel discussion, I offered a Trinitarian Christian perspective, but my take is pretty different from what he associates with Baptists. He's apparently not heard ever from any Christian whose theology leaves room for the inclusion of members of other religions. All Elias has ever heard is we're in and everybody else is out. We're right, and you're wrong. Following that panel discussion, he quizzed me a bit, and then he said, but is what you believe, well, is that Christian theology? Is that the Christian position? Well, I allowed that I may not represent mainstream theology, if mainstream means most by numbers, but I turned the tables and I asked Elias, who speaks for the Jews? Only your conservative rabbis? What about the orthodox position? 
or that of Reform Judaism? Is Reconstructionist theology Jewish theology? What about Hasidic or Lubavitch theology? What is Jewish theology? I think I made my point with Elias, but I also understand why he was confused. The loudest Christian voices, the obnoxious televangelists and fundamentalist Bible thumpers, those pastors exulting in their five minutes of fame as part of Donald Trump's evangelical advisory board, all of those Christians speak as if they are Christianity, as if there's only one way to be Christian, and as if that one way to heaven is defined by conforming to a prescribed set of beliefs. And that doctrine, their doctrine, of course, sounds nothing like my doctrine. So I can understand why my Jewish friend was confused. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, is often quoted as saying, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Well, it's a wonderful thought, though apparently John Wesley never said it. But we need to ask, in essentials, unity? And who defines the essentials? Even the most rabid of Christian fundamentalists cannot agree. Some say there are five fundamentals that you have to believe to go to heaven. Some say there are seven. Who's right? Are there five fundamentals or seven fundamentals? Even the fundamentalists can't agree. So what is Christianity? Is there a true orthodox doctrine a set of beliefs? Has there ever been? When Jesus called Peter the rock of a new church, was there a doctrinal requirement? When the early followers gathered in Jerusalem, the first church, did they conform to unity in the essentials? 300 years later, when the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity and hosted a series of councils that brought bishops from around the Mediterranean world together so they could talk, and there they defined the divinity of Jesus and the Trinity as orthodox, did all of Christendom conform? No. Not then, not thereafter. Christianity has never been a monolith. In his book entitled Early Christianities, Bart Ehrman, the religion scholar at UNC Chapel Hill, shows how widely Christian theologies diverged across the ancient world. From the very beginning, some Christian communities accepted the divinity of Jesus, but others did not. The virgin birth, the resurrection, the second coming, there has never been uniform consensus on doctrine. When I began questioning the theology of my childhood, the fear of moving beyond orthodoxy, of becoming, you know, too liberal, even heretical, this fear rattled my religious insecurities. It was comforting to recognize that the questions I was asking have been asked from the very beginning. And Christians have always found themselves across the spectrum in how they answer those questions. 
Now, there will always be a majority opinion, of course. That's just mathematical. But majority opinion is no guarantee of rightness, much less of goodness. Houston Smith, the acclaimed expert in world religions, helpfully reminds us that all doctrine comes out of experience. Some personal, spiritual, maybe communal experience. In an effort to talk about experience, to explain and share an experience, doctrine eventually develops. I detail this in several sermons about my own Trinitarian theology, and I'll be glad to share that with you if you're interested. But Smith's point is that if the words of the doctrine can point us back to the experience, then those words can be of great value. Just before worship, Dan handed me this quote from Frederick Beekner. I thought I would read it to you. It speaks just of what uh, Houston Smith says. No matter how fancy and metaphysical a doctrine sounds, it was a human experience first. The doctrine of the divinity of Christ, for instance, the place it began was not in the word processor of some 4th century Greek theologian, but in the experience of basically untheological people who had known Jesus of Nazareth and found something happening to their lives that had never happened before. Unless you can somehow participate yourself in the experience that lies behind the doctrine, simply to subscribe to it doesn't mean very much. Sometimes, however, simply to subscribe to a doctrine is the first step toward experiencing the reality that lies behind it. Doctrines shape and define, they frame a worldview, they form a story, and there's never been a better way to communicate truth than through story. So doctrine can be extremely valuable. You know, it's impossible to teach children anything in abstractions, metaphors, spiritual allegories. Children can only learn, their brains can only comprehend concrete expression. We need to be able to say, this is what we believe. But in and of themselves, to worship the words, the doctrine, is to completely miss the point. So the universalist preacher, Hosea Balu, had it right. There is only one criterion that should matter in doctrinal matters. Can you reduce it to practice? Can you practice the virgin birth? Can you practice the second coming of Christ? Can you practice premillennial dispensationalism? Can you practice the omnipotent God who is in control? Can you practice all things happen for a reason? Doctrine may have its place helping us to frame our story, but no, you cannot practice these doctrines. Can you practice the ethic and love of Jesus? Well, that depends. It depends on whether you are willing to speak truth to power, challenging the powers and conventional wisdom, 
It depends on whether you are willing to welcome the stranger, the unorthodox, those who have been alienated by the doctrines of church and culture. Practicing Jesus depends on whether we're willing to make power or love most important. Whether being right or being real will guide us. Whether winning or serving is what matters. Whether faith is living or just believing something. Practicing Jesus depends on whether we will do the right thing always, no matter the cost. We can practice the ethic and love of Jesus. But if we just make of him another belief, we can expect the same from that belief. No more and no less, the good and the bad that we get from any other doctrine. Now, we cannot control the angry, pious voices out there around us, but can we practice Jesus right here? Can we? May it be so. Amen. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you. Thank you.